I practice law every day. And the relationship between law enforcement and prosecutors is incestuous because every prosecutor relies on law enforcement to make their cases. And so it's kind of hard for you to then go in the family and ask that same prosecutor to prosecute somebody who's been helping them make cases. You have a new police misconduct division of the Department of Justice that's dedicated just to answering uh, uh, complaints and investigating police misconduct. The independent investigators would be a game changer because if you're a citizen, you call the the feds and the feds job is actually to respond to you. It's not like to try and bury your complaint under a rug. to welcome to Yang Speaks, South Carolina leader, son and nephew of civil rights icons, commentator on what's happening right now and really for the last number of decades in American life where uh, race is concerned, but also now a newly minted author uh, just wrote a book, My Vanishing Country, um, which I've read and enjoyed a a great deal. And it, it gives you a sense of the historical arc of many of the things we're facing as a country today. Mr. Bakari Sellers, welcome, Bakari. Uh, thank you so much for having me, uh, Andrew. I've uh, I've always admired you. I love the work that you're doing. Um, your race for president of the United States, your campaign invigorated and brought more people into the process. And now I get to call you a co-worker um, and a colleague. And it's just uh, your voice is refreshing. And so thank you for everything. And thank you for welcoming me to the to the Yang Gang. Well, thrilled to have you here, uh, Bakari. You know, I mean, you're you're such an important figure. I saw your uh, emotional reaction on yeah. uh, TV about uh, George Floyd and and what's happened. And you're you have one boy and one girl. Is that right? I know they're twins. I have, one, I have twins. I have one boy, one girl, and I have a 15 year old. And so, you know, when I think back on that moment, um, Andrew, it it. Um, for me, I was coming on and you know how this goes. Sometimes I was coming on TV after um, George Floyd's brother and he was really emotional. Um, and, you know, I was just thinking about the fact that he lay dead in the street. I was thinking about the fact that the officer had his knee on his neck for eight minutes, three of which he was um, three of which he was already uh, dead um, didn't give him the benefit of his humanity. And I began to think, what would I tell my children? Um, how was I going to raise my children in a world where there is a segment of the population that does not give them the benefit of their humanity? Um, and for me, it was just, it was, it was that level of disrespect that they showed George. Um, but it's over and over again. You know, my father's generation was Emmett Till, Jimmy Lee Jackson, Medgar Evers, um, the four little girls in the 16th Street Baptist Church. And then for me, it's not only my good friend Clem um, in the Charleston Massacre, which I write about, but it's also um, George, Ahmad, Brianna, Trayvon, Eric, Alton, Walter, Keith, Tamir, Sandra. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And I think right now people have to realize in this moment, we're having a moment that's not just about George Floyd, but Um, It's also about years and decades and centuries of systemic racism and institutionalized oppression. Now, we have a 
crisis uh, that's on top of a crisis on top of decades and decades of uh, structural racism. Uh, and the fact that you you've obviously internalized each victim that we know about. And we all know that for every victim you just listed, there must be dozens, hundreds of others that we'll never hear about. Correct. Uh, that just no one had a smartphone handy uh, or the narrative never reached the public eye. Um, one of the things that I found most difficult to stomach when I was looking into these issues when I was running for president because uh, oh, there was a huge need for uh, criminal justice reform and uh, addressing uh, police brutality uh, before this crisis. Uh, we don't even know how many people are shot and killed by police officers every year or yes. die in police custody. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things I think about is uh, going back to you all's campaign, Julian Castro actually got this right. Julian was one of the he had one of the the more bold visions on this. Um, but there are things we can do, Andrew. And that's what you know, I don't like the people who are telling us um, to just go and wait to vote in November. I, I just that that doesn't do us any good because at the rate they're killing black folk, that's going to be about another five, six, seven bodies between now and November. But I want people to talk about limiting qualified immunity in civil suits that we bring against bad police officers and, and bad police departments. I want people to talk about lowering the standard um, by which you can bring federal criminal uh, civil rights charges against law enforcement officers. I want a national um, standardized use of force guidelines and training. I want a national database because right now you can be a bad cop in one city and go two, co two cities down and get another job. I want the officers arrested in George Floyd's case. So, I mean, these are things that we can talk about doing now, structural change and reform and the way that we police right now. Um, but we seem to be absent leadership. Um, and, you know, as Democrats, sometimes I say that we, we legislate with a stop sign. Like we never, we never go big enough. We never go bold enough. We never go creative enough. We never go progressive enough. And I think that this is the time in which we have to do that. I could not agree more. Uh, I, I think being told it's like, hey, wait for uh, five months and like head to the ballot box. Uh, I mean, there's so, so much urgency and energy and passion and grief uh, and despair. And I understand people looking up and saying shit has not been working for us for years, decades. Like, you know, why would we expect it to change um, with any one election? So, uh, but let, let's go through your, the, those measures uh, one by one, because I think they're so important. Um, sure. uh, so when I, I looked at this again, like uh, with you, number one, I'm like a data guy. So the first thing I think is like, okay, like how many people uh, does this kill every year? And then when you know you can't find that out, then you're like, oh shit, like that's really, <laughs> that, that, that's like very, very damning. Um, because you know, like there's a police department where, you know, someone shoots uh shoots an unarmed black man in the dead of night and you're just like, oh, well, um, well, let's just like say that the person like, you know, attacked, fled, was armed. Like, like, like the officers would just say they were scared. I mean, the, 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 you, the, the wild thing is that this officer Chauvin had 18 complaints against him. Um, now, I know some people just file frivolous complaints sometimes, but 18 is a whole lot. Um, or in the case of David McAtee, one of the cases that we're seeing now out of Louisville, um, they called him they called him the barbecue man. 
And he literally in his barbecue restaurant fed cops for free. So imagine you feed cops for free and are now gunned down by cops. And you you talk about the evidence or lack thereof when you're talking about data. Well, you know, their body cam footage wasn't on. So, you know, how do we even figure out what happened? So you you have these things. And like you said, we can start with the data. Um, I think that's important. And from that data, we can mine other good ideas. Um, but I do think that there has to be some standardized some nationalized things that we do, starting with data, of course, but also starting with the use of force um, and, and, and making sure that, for example, chokeholds aren't allowed in one district and in de- department, but allowed in another. I, I met with a Black Lives Matter activist in New York, Hawk Newsom, uh, who said to me, said, look, look, here's the problem. And this this struck me as true. Um, he said, so let's say you have a dirty cop uh, does something terrible in an area. The local district attorneys literally work with law enforcement day in, day out. Uh, and if you're the mayor of that town, uh, law enforcement's possibly the most important constituency you have, where if they turn on you, you're fucked. Um, and so you're looking at it and saying, OK, let's see the DA, the mayor, like no one has a real interest in trying to root out uh, like bad cops or confront them on uh, brutal behavior. And so what Hawk said to me was like, you need someone from outside of that area. And Kamala said this yesterday too, something similar. She said it needs to be like the state attorney general, which which strikes me as still too close to the the area, because if you're like, you know, the the state AGs still probably knows a lot of the same people. So what I what I would say is I practice law every day and I'm, I'm criminal criminal lawyer. I do it all. The only things I don't do are immigration and family law. And the relationship between law enforcement and prosecutors is incestuous because every prosecutor relies on law enforcement to make their cases. And so it's kind of hard for you to then go in the family and ask that same prosecutor to prosecute somebody who's been helping them make cases for uh, the past you know, decade plus. And so you need those outside independent investigators to come in and handle these cases, outside independent prosecutors to handle these cases. Um, I think it's gonna be very interesting um, with with Keith, Keith Ellison handling this case uh, as the attorney general in Minnesota, um, that's going to be very interesting. But nationwide, we have to see um, independent investigators of um, of law enforcement shootings. And, you know, it, it's no excuse to have your um, it's no excuse to have your uh, your body camera yes. not on. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's no excuse that we don't have um that we don't have use of force training and de-escalation training and manuals around that we can actually pick up and see because it's not only the data, but it's the lack of transparency. Let me put it to you this way. Breonna Taylor and George Floyd funded the departments that killed them. And what I mean by that is our tax dollars go to the Department of Justice who issues grants to these departments. We don't have any clawback mechanisms, but these departments have no transparency have no civilian oversight. We don't know their training mechanisms, but yet our tax dollars go to them. And so I think that we I'm not saying defund, but what I am saying is that we need to have some accountability, accountability measures in place with our tax dollars that go to this, these police. Well, so th- this is my I, uh, uh, proposal that I, I put out 
um, on social media and uh, some people loved it. I actually got much more love than anything else. Um, so if you take as a given that local district attorneys and officials are going to have a hard time confronting uh police misconduct in their area because of the incestuous relationships that, that you just described. And you need someone independent. Now, now I looked at the Department of Justice guidelines and after the Rodney King riots, uh, they passed a law saying that, uh, that the Department of Justice can uh, investigate police departments for systemic problems as they did with the LAPD. Correct. Patterns, yes, patterns of, practice. of practice and it, you know, violating uh, uh, constitutional rights and equal rights. Um, that happens very, very seldom. Um, it's happened, I believe, once in the entire Trump administration, uh, and it strikes me as woefully insufficient. Um, so the proposal is that you have a new police misconduct division of the Department of Justice that's dedicated just to, to answering uh uh, complaints and investigating police misconduct. If you were a really good DA or mayor, you actually welcome this because you're like, oh, good. Like, you know, I didn't want to have to pick a fight with like the the local law enforcement, but the feds are here. Uh, you name it after George Floyd, you fund it. Uh, and then you have an army of investigators who are just following up to see like, you know, it's like, hey, there are a lot of complaints against this Derek Chauvin character, like 18 of them, you know, it's like, uh, or, or you're coming in hopefully before <laughs> the fact you're completely immune from political influence. Your job is just to try and root out bad cops. Um, I suggested that Val Demings, uh, um, uh, run it, um, someone that people would be excited about, um, because she has a law enforcement background and, and, um, you know, and, yeah, and so, sure. Because and then most people saw this proposal and said, like, yes, that this could be uh, he could be onto something here. Other people took the like, like, no, we should defund uh, essentially like what your original, which like I looked at it and say, look, there are 18,000 police departments around the the country getting funded in all sorts of ways by like municipalities and property tax and the rest of it. It's it's like like I, I understand um, the impulse, but it, to me, it's much more practical to actually like, like bring up you. someone who, who's like an independent actor who doesn't have ties to the community. Their entire measurements are just around trying to root out police misconduct. Um, and then you could also get better data because you'd have a department that's dedicated to it. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, there are a few things. One, patterns and practice investigations in law enforcement literally take about the entire presidency um, before they're completed, before you can actually issue a consent order or something of that nature. They take forever. They're too long. And as you said, they're woefully inadequate. But not only should cities and, and local elected officials welcome it, but good cops should welcome it, too, um, because you're shining some light in and you don't have to worry about um you don't have to worry about what's going on and who's protecting you and who you're serving with because you're a good cop. But you do know that there are others there um, who um, who are reviewing these things. And I think Val Demings is, is so dope. I love I love Val Demings. I mean, she's been she's been an absolute superstar. You never know. I think she might have some other. Yeah, things no, I, she I, has know, her I know. I know. Someone right someone responded to be like, well, she's not vice president. Maybe she can run the George Floyd police misconduct <laughs> but, division. But, but having. But having this independent arbiter arbiter of of, you know, misconduct, I think, is very, very valid and it speeds up justice. I mean, we're sitting here today and, you know, the officers still have not been arrested and hopefully that changes. Um, You know, we we're not sure. I I agree with Rand Paul weirdly and weirdly enough about no knock warrants in Louisville in the case of Breonna Taylor. Um, They literally I mean, they just released her boyfriend who shot back 
I mean, he, he did something that most people would do. That yeah, if people kick down the door you of your house with like your... uh, guns out. You might, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you wake up startled. You're going to shoot back, you know. Um, and so they drop the charges. But we just have so many reforms that, you know, I, I think that you would agree with me that this passive attitude that even some Democrats are taking now where you're like, we're, uh, we're asking for peace, but we're not asking for justice. And we're telling people to go home without anything to do or without any strategy or without any um, aspirations or goals, I think is is um, a mistake. I agree, man. I'm not doing that because I understand the anger. It's like and people have been rightfully pointing out, it's like this shit has been going on under Democrats and Republicans under like different administrations. And it's not like, uh, you know, if you just win an election, like all of a sudden uh, black people are safe in their neighborhoods. I mean, we all know it's just not true. Well, I, I. this discussion is refreshing because it's one that's that, you know, it, it abides by um, the policy guidelines that I set forth in my head. And that's when I put my legislative hat back on, which is, you know, I, I am tired of Democrats and Republicans just proposing these race neutral policies for very race specific problems we have. Right. I'm not a big believer in rising tide lifts all boats. I do think that we have to have. And you talk about this as well when it comes to capital and directing resources directly. Yeah, sure. Some freaking money to people's hands like that. That would help, too. I mean, George Floyd died because he was like allegedly, you know, using like a counterfeit twenty dollar bill. I mean, you know, like uh, is that the situation if he got two thousand dollars a month in uh, relief, let's say forever, hypothetically, Uh, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. I, I think that we have to. You know, I've come around on on um, UBI. Um, I don't think it can supplant or surplant um, uh, some of the safety net programs we have yeah, right now. I don't no, think it, it doesn't. has to. But I do believe that that what we're what we've exposed. And one of the things I talk about in my book is for me, it's not about somebody calling me nigger. Which is one it's thing I really appreciate about your book, by the way, because you're like, I get called like that all the time. But like if that freaking like, <laughs> like what was yeah, the issue? Like yeah. I'd never be it, able to do anything. Exactly. But Stokely pointed out, you know, I always refer to Stokely's uncle. Stokely would always say that, you know, we have to define racism and racism is if you if you want to lynch me, that's your problem. But if you have the power to lynch me, that's my problem. Right. And so it's a power construct and it's about systems. Right. It's about systems and institutionalized racism. And so. Um, one of the things that I've always, always, always um, talked about is the fact that if you take if you take this pandemic, if you want to peel the layers back, you would appreciate this because now we have data. We have data that shows us that black people are dying disproportionately the, and Native Americans. And the question is why? And I go back and I'm like, it's not just you know, get more vitamin D, stop drinking and stop smoking. It's the fact that as I outlined in my vanishing country, like you know, you grow up in a food desert where you can't have healthy food alternatives. You um, you're drinking dirty water. You're breathing in polluted air. Um, you know, you you live next to a brownfield or a manufacturing plant. Um, you're going to schools that are broken down. I mean, all of these things contribute to the comorbidities, contribute to the preventable diseases. And then you overlay a pandemic. I mean, hell, like, you know, the saying when when America gets the gets a cold, black folk get the flu. Well, now America has covid and black folk are dying. And that is the reason why, because of these systemic injustices we have in this country. And so right now, you know, racism and those systemic racism is killing people two ways through covid and, you know, on the streets at the hands of law enforcement. And, you know, we haven't we haven't really addressed that. And one of the ways that, you know, we've peeled the layer back when we look at the data 
Um, I think that, you know, when you talk about a UBI, UBI, that is one way to um, that's one way in which we can help improve some of these systems and improve the culture in many of these communities. Now, to me, uh, Bakari, and I said this uh, uh, on the trail, uh, words hurt, numbers kill. You know, if, if you have systemic poverty and uh, people uh, have high blood pressure and all these, you know, diabetes and um, all these health problems because they live in a food desert, uh, they're food insecure, they're, they don't know where their next um, rent check or paycheck is going to come from. That's also very, very stressful. You know, you have like elevated, um, yes. uh, elevated mental health problems and uh, anxiety and everything else. Um, that like the numbers are the the thing that we can actually address if we all get together as a country and say, hey, guess what? We're tired of people being poor. Uh, Two thousand dollars a month, and this is what uh, Martin Luther King was fighting for when he was killed. Uh, and, you know, to me, his memories has been sanitized. You have this like celebrate his birthday. Oh. Like, you know, I have a dream and it's like, you know what you don't say and you don't see every freaking year. It's like universal basic income. <laughs> you know, so, like, let's like, just give everyone, you know, I, I, I talk about, I talk about that in a book too. I, I remind people often at the last Gallup poll they did of King, I think it was 64, but it might've been 66. I think it was 64. His approval rating was in the low thirties and Donald Trump's approval rating stays between 40 and 48. So when people oftentimes bring up Dr. King, I'm like, you do remember that, you know, not only did you kill him, but he really wasn't well liked when he died because he was a revolutionary and he's been whitewashed and many other things. I mean, people don't even understand how he died, why he died and how he was fighting for the the rights of sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah, he was fighting for UBI. He was fighting for improved con- work and worker conditions and um, just in, improving the plight and the load of everyday people of color and everyday working people. Um which we have to one of the things we have to do. And, and I, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because we have to flip the narrative on his head that working class means white and rural means white and urban means black. Like we have to kind of disavow ourselves and disabuse ourselves of those notions. Um, but, yes, you're right. Dr. King was a revolutionary whose legacy has been whitewashed. Well, there's so many uh, arresting or like affecting stories from your book. I mean, certainly your father's story. I mean, I, I feel like um he was very lucky to be alive. Like it, it, it's clear that, yes. um, that some people intended him harm. Um, and, and, uh, you know, three other, uh, people lost their lives, the Orangeburg, mm-hmm. uh, massacre, which I agree with you also is very much overlooked in history. And I can't imagine what it's like to have that be your family's lineage, like your, your, your family's history. Um, was also the story of your friend Pop from childhood, who who just seemed like, <laughs> yeah. just instinctively, I just really liked him. He just seemed like such a great guy. <laughs> um, and, and you know, he he went to college, had to better himself. Um, you know, became a parent, uh, but still struggled mightily. Um, yeah, and yes. and that that hurt because you know there is this myth of the American dream where if you like, you know, try and do the right things, like you'll end up uh, being able to live a decent life. And for many, many people, including many of the uh, people you grew up with, it's not true. You know, my story of pop, um, first of all, you never really realize how many characters are in your life until you begin to write about them. I mean, when you write, I can't wait to read your next book, Andrew, but when you write about it, all these characters you meet, um, and that, that play a role in your life and you give them life in their own right and give them a voice. You're like, wow, these, these people are really, my friends are really complex, but pop is, 
a story of, of love, uh, challenge, um, conflict. Um, but if, you know, if pop's a member of the Yang gang and, or he takes a minute to listen to this pod, I, I want pop to know that he's a success because his struggle, his toils, his tribulations, him trying to get over the hump, him trying to attain that American dream is going to create uh, more opportunity for his children. And um, they won't have to um, go through many of the same things that Pop did. Um, Pop is, is will always be my brother. Um, you know, we he was right. We were raised together. Um, different sides of the track, different households. I, I write vividly about when Pop lost his father and how he ended up coming over to our house and living with us and him being mad he wasn't invited to the wedding. And, um, you know, just just all of these things, these complicated relationships. But Pop is Pop is a Pop is a part of an America that people don't want to see and don't, don't want to talk about. And yeah, I, it's one reason why your, your book's so important. Uh, we have to let people know that, uh, you know, this is the nor- new normal or the old normal, the same normal uh, in America and that we need to do something about it. Um, so it sounds like we have uh, agreed on two big things so far. Um, we need a new police misconduct uh, team of investigators that are immune from local influence. Um, you know, and, and it sounds like we both want to get rid of poverty. You think like that would help, um, which I, I, I believe that would help. Uh, what do you think about this idea? I, I've been thinking about this in my head. I want to, I want to push this country to create a, a new infrastructure package. I think it's bipartisan and along the same lines of, um, uh, my race specific, uh, policy proposals. I want, uh, this infrastructure to be in, in a few buckets, um, you know, innovative cutting edge technologies like high speed railways between uh, major cities, especially throughout the South, like Charlotte, Atlanta, and those type things. Um, um, but I also want to have broadband involved in it. I want basic, basic, uh, utilities like water, involved in it because, you know, we, we still have dirty water in Flint, Michigan and Denmark, yes. South Carolina, um, which is a travesty. Um, and, you know, I want to say that we set aside $2 trillion or $5 trillion. And of those monies, um, you know, 10% has to go to minority owned businesses. Right. Um, and of the other, of the other remaining 90%, they have to have a minority hiring component. Um, think about how that impacts an economy. Think about how that lifts up minority businesses. Think about how that um, uh, gives people jobs, high paying jobs. And because we'll have to cultivate and create a new um, workforce, think about those businesses who will then partner with places like HBCUs um, or, or other technical colleges to help cultivate and build an entire new labor force. I just think that if we focus on something like our country's infrastructure to rebuild yes. it, I think that we can actually create an entire new generation of wealth. Everyone should be able to get behind this. I can't believe Trump didn't even build anything. I thought that this would be his jam just so he could throw his name <laughs> on it. Um, but, but yeah. I mean, He's a he's a horrible builder, yeah, apparently. too, apparently, but whatever. <laughs> but trillions of dollars in infrastructure, um, for everything from clean water to broadband in rural communities to uh, 5G, high-speed rail, um, 
I mean, the, the reality is our country's falling apart. Like, uh, we're, we, we're still, yeah, literally, literally falling apart. It's unsafe. Uh, we are coasting on investments that were made decades ago. And, uh, like now, uh, it's time to reinvest. It's past time. And this used to be bipartisan. Uh, it, it's a symptom of just how dysfunctional things have gotten. And it would, and it, it would potentially rejuvenate, uh, Black communities and communities around the the country, because to your point, let's say you know ten percent of uh, two trillion would be like two hundred billion dollars that went straight into to uh, minority owned businesses and communities. I, and and you know I I just think about the ripple effect. I mean, you these people you know, you're going to, you're going to be working, you're going to be um, in, it's going to take engineers. These are high paying jobs, et cetera. These companies are going to have to um, invest in STEM programs in local communities to help build pipelines. And these are, as you know, these projects take years, if not decades to complete. So you're talking about a constant stream of, uh, of a return of ROI. I mean, these are your words and phrases. I mean, I, I visited, so I visited family in Asia and there's a high speed rail that goes the equivalent of New York to DC in like 75, 80 minutes, like, uh, what would, would be like a four hour drive, um, like, a, you know, an hour and 20 minute train ride, high speed rail. And it warps your sense of the laws of time and space. Uh, and it also ge- gave rise to whole new communities that were, let's call it like 60 miles away from downtown. But all of a sudden that's like a 35 minute train ride. So then they just built it right. up because it's like, so it, you know, you know, <laughs> so that's like a whole new town. Um, so, so those are the possibilities. Right, so we added a third, we added a, we added a third thing. We're at infrastructure too. So, I mean, we, we we're, we're rocking it. We're fixing all the world's problems. We, we did policing, we did poverty and now well, we're let, on let's infrastructure. come back to policing because there's some other like things that need to be done after even you have, I think the, the independent investigators would be a game changer because if you're a citizen, you call the, the fed, and the Fed's job is actually to respond to you. It's not like to try and bury your complaint under a rug. So and, and so I just want to unpack this a little bit more because I dug into some of the numbers. Right now, communities are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on payouts for victims of police brutality. It's a massive line item in their budgets. Oh, like correct. In North in North Charleston, they paid out six point five million dollars for for the murder of Walter Scott um, out of their out of their just city budget. Um, and you know, you, if you weren't killing and shooting people in the back, maybe you could use that for, I don't know, summer programs, <laughs> summer Healthcare, job programs, schools, school, like whatever schools. it is. And, and as we're talking about human life, but the fact is like police, um, brutality is very, very costly. Uh, there's a, like New York city spent 300 million on payouts in a year. Uh, and, 300 million million in in a year. And that's independent of the actual uh, like lawyers fees because that wasn't included like, uh, you know, that um, or insurance because like I'm sure they had to to, they they pay for that, too. Um, So you're talking about uh, nationwide hundreds of millions of dollars that are getting spent essentially cleaning up after dirty cops uh, and. That money could be better spent. It's also a sign of how big the problem is because you know only a fraction of these lawsuits are ever seeing the light of day. Like the vast majority just get, you know, Correct. it's like, oh, yeah, or not, not even settled. It's like, you know, like fucking shot that guy. Like, you know, he like he scared me. Like, you know, like that. That, that, <laughs> that is that is also yeah, it's very like the, true. the vast majority of the time. It's not like, like a lawsuit's being brought. Um, so 
so if you see that the successful lawsuits are resulting in hundreds of millions of dollars in liability, in some cases, towns uh, like had to cut back on other services because they were stuck with some freaking giant like, uh, you know, and, and you just think, but think about if we invested, if we invested 10% of that on the front end yes. and like trained. Properly. So that's where we have to go. We have to take this feedback loop or even paid them more. Like I'm not opposed to paying good cops yes. more. So, so here right? was an idea I, I had, Bakari. I hope you like it. Sounds like you're going to like it. Um, so what you do is you have department wide bonuses tied to like uh, lower police brutality liability in a given. So like like, well, it's it's an OK idea. But you mean like an all state drive safe? You get. Yeah. A check so thing? here's the thing. It's like if you're part of like the NYPD and you're paying 300 million out and and. Uh, um, penalties, then you go to the members of the police department and be like, Hey, FYI, um, like, uh, if you get that down, like, uh, we'll actually distribute 10% of the reduction to officers. So like each of you can get like a few hundred dollars at the end of the year, if you guys like get the liability down and then some asshole does something and you're just like, Oh fuck man. Like, you know, like uh, that, that actually like cost me money. I mean, that will, I don't, I don't like, um, I don't like incentivizing people to be anti-racist. However, uh, because the problem is so exacerbated, I don't think that's a bad idea. And I think that what it does is it helps what, what you what you're doing with that is you're changing culture because now it's like um, it's like everybody at home now. And then you see these fools out just like walking around with no mask on and you feel like you're a kindergarten class that can't get recessed because of two people. And so you change the culture. You start having people in law enforcement. They're like, dude, you I mean, let's not shoot. the, Let's not shoot the guy in the back. Right. Like you don't have to beat him. Right. Like we can get this extra few dollars. And I, I think that it would actually build some level of camaraderie. certainly camaraderie around good cops, because if you're a good cop, then you're like, hey, like because so one of another study I saw, I'm obviously been digging into this, but like bad cops are incredibly expensive. You know, it's like like that when when you looked at it, like a bad cop generates um, lawsuits, but like uh, more like they increase your insurance premiums There are all these problems with a bad cop. Um, so if you had measurements around a police department, essentially incurring lower liabilities. But I 100% agree with you, though. It's all about the culture, because right now the culture is it's us against them um, with us defined as law enforcement exactly. and them defined as everyone else. Exactly. I mean, but in this, I mean, but that just that's that's so American, because right now we're at a point where I can't even say black lives matter. I mean, have you seen the yeah, Michael I just retweeted it just because it was so relevant and awesome <laughs> and brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's so relevant. Like we can't even agree on that. Like nobody. We're just saying it matters. Right. We're not we're not saying it matters more than anything else. We're just asking for like it to matter. And so one of the things that one of the ways you were able to break through in your race and one of the things we have to duplicate, though, is bringing new people into this process and. Um, and creating a level of understanding. You know, the biggest problem we have in this country is we're absent empathy. I just don't think that people have the want to put themselves in other people's shoes. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, if you read my vanishing country, I want you to be able to have a level of understanding and at least just have some empathy for your fellow man and understanding what it means to be black in this country. You know, T.D. Jakes told me something so poignant. He said, look, and you would agree with this. He he said, you can't he said, you can teach me math, you can teach me science, you can teach me English, but you can't teach me blackness. Um, and until we start to get understanding of other people's cultures, then we'll never get to the level of empathy that actually gets us to a point where we can begin to heal. And we need to see that in all of our systems. I, I mean, we need to see that not only in our policing, we need to see that in, we need to see that level of empathy in our infrastructure because you don't want 
I mean, you don't want your daughter or son or whomever drinking dirty water. Well, so why should I? You want to you you want to talk about it in, in our educational um, system because of the fact that kids are punished because of the zip codes they're born into today. You've come to South Carolina. You know about the corridor of shame where kids go to school and their heating and air doesn't work and their infrastructure is falling apart. And so we have to be focused on remedying these um, you talk about in your book, man, like the empathy of like our healthcare system where they just don't listen to black women, like black women like say, hey, I'm I'm in pain or this is wrong with me. And then like, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've seen I've seen our, the brokenness of our healthcare system from from three angles, like one living in a community where we lost our hospital one, um, you know, we when you don't expand Medicaid, that that shit happens. And people don't even know the economic impact of losing a hospital. It's not just a healthcare um, impact, but it's an economic impact because you know what happens when you lose your hospital in small towns and small communities? That's usually your number one employer. So people are unemployed. And not only that, but all the small businesses around it, the florist shops, the pharmacies, the restaurants that all spring off because of the hospital, that whole part of town just shuts down. So I lost my hospital, almost lost my wife in birth of our child last year. Um, we talked about African-American female mortality. She hemorrhaged while giving birth to my twins. Um, thank God. I mean, I don't I don't know. I, I gave and it sounds like you were you, you were a key part of the reason why she survived, because you raised the alarm. You have to you have to become an advocate. You got to become a champion. And for the first 36 hours of their life, she was in ICU. So I saw it through not only losing access to care, but also. Um, African-American female mortality. And the third thing is my daughter last year had to have a liver transplant. And, you know, we we um, you, I was able to see up close and personal a very broken um, transplant system that we have in this country um, where less than five percent of donors are African-American. But they we, we need more um, because of these preventable and comorbidities that we talked about. We need more access to organs. And so just from those three perspectives, I have an and very interesting, but yet personal look on how we have to make sure that everyone has access to the promises and ideals of this country that I say and believe are vanishing, although I believe we can reclaim it right now. It's vanishing before our eyes. Yes. Uh, well, if there's anyone who is going to help uh, help us reclaim it, it's you and, and yours, Bakari. Uh, so you talked about national training for police officers, which I also completely agree with. Uh, my sense right now is that there's like, a, you know, whole range of different training uh, approaches, but most all of them uh, seem to center on uh, shooting to kill relatively quickly, like making snap decisions. Um, and, and we need to have some national training uh, yeah, protocols. And so I, I talked to um, someone who who's in policing and he suggested that um we need more intermediate weapons uh as a way to de-escalate like because right now it seems like it's uh gun or nothing and he was like look like yes you theoretically have some other things but like we, we need to like make it so that shooting with a lethal firearm is not your first move i mean i i also think that and this is going to be somewhat sensationalized and a little bit controversial. But if you're inherently afraid of black people, like you don't need to be on a law, law enforcement force, like if that's your fear, if you were just scared, right, you're always scared. That's not that's not something you should do. But I think that there are a number of mechanisms and ways and methods because we see it done with other people often of de-escalating um, very, very tense situations that don't involve. You, you, they rolled up on Tamir Rice and shot him in like two seconds playing with a toy gun. 
that anybody who, you know, would have been able to see it. I mean, it's a 12 year old kid. He was a boy. He was in a park playing with a toy gun by himself. Like, and they rode up on him and shot him. I mean, the chokehold that was used against Eric Gardner and the standard is so high that Barack Obama's Department of Justice wasn't even able to bring charges against uh, Penalone. Pen, pronounce his last name, Daniel Pen, uh, the, Penalone. The New York officer, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do any better than you did. Yeah. So I mean, you you just you just um, Pantaleo, you just um, we just have so many things that can be done, and and it just seems like under Democrats and Republicans, nothing has been well, done. Here's um, a really big complaint I have about Democrats. Um, it's this: is that like Democrats to me um, almost put too much faith in uh, institutions, rules, and bureaucracies. It's like, oh, we need like a better. Uh, we need a better rule. We need a better rule. Uh, and, and sometimes you got to look up and say, wait a minute, like, you know, we actually just need to do the thing, whatever the thing is. Um, and, and it's one reason why to, to me, exactly. um, like we don't have the right approach towards uh, police brutality because we, we have this um, half-hearted Department of Justice oversight that, like you said, takes years, is only available in certain cases. Um, it isn't even going after individuals. It has to be essentially like departmental policies uh, and and whatnot. Um, and it's one reason why people are fed up. Like you look around and be like, all oh, right, who the hell has responsibility for this? And you have a system where it's, uh, you know, it's like, well, everyone's just looking around being like, I don't know who's responsible for this. And then like, you know, that's why people are so pissed off. Yeah, I, and I think people, and Fannie Lou Hamer said it best, people are sick and tired of being sick and tired. And we've gone and we've seen, we've we've sent many of the same elected officials back year after year after year after year and nothing's changed. And, you know, we have one of the most, I can't, I can't leave this show. I know we're getting near the end, but I can't leave this show without telling people um, we got to, we got to participate in the census. You know, I know that Dude, the election I, coming I totally up agree is, with you. It seems wonky, but the census is freaking vital. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> no, know, I know. It sounds I, so like I don't. I mean, I wish I, I wish we could kind of get near the end on something different. But the census is literally how power is distributed in this country. It's one of the most important things. I, that we I've have. got an idea, man. You and I should like rebrand the census. Oh, it's too late for this one, but maybe the next one. Instead of calling it the census. Oh yeah, the marketing on the census is horrible. The mar the, the in every ten years it doesn't get any better. <laughs> but we we have to digitize and rebrand the census. I mean that. <sighs> It's just so much to do. Um, and we don't have a lot of time to fix it either, Andrew. That's the thing. No, I mean, the the country is literally on fire right now. Uh, and aren't you kind of glad, though, in retrospect, that you're not the next president? Because think about think about the mess you're going to have to clean up. Think about after. Do you know you like it's it's kind of like you're you, it's kind of like you, you're the uh, for example, you're the general manager after Bobby Cox or you're the quarterback after Brett Favre or you're the coach after Dean Smith. Right. That's not what you what you want to do, uh, because the expectation level for you is going to be maybe that's a horrible example because he's doing such a poor job. But it's going to be a huge mess. It's going to be a really, really big job for somebody. And it's going to be no, really it's, it's, tough. Um, I mean, I'd love to be coming in as president because you know there's just so much to do uh but i'm with you that we're coming from like a very very deep dark hole uh and like the the hole is claiming people i mean it's claiming lives and and i understand when people look at this and being like like i feel i have no recourse but to march on the streets break curfew whatever the heck and uh you know scream at the top of my lungs uh or worse uh because no, like we have this inhuman system that's just been grinding people up. Um, and 
it's been grinding people of color up in like the most gruesome, inhuman way possible. And when you see this happen, you look up and say like, you know, what choices have you left me at this point? You know, it's like my political system seems completely unresponsive. Um, you know, you have, I, I said something that's like pretending it's working is now working, you know? And, and, and one of the things that, that like a lot of Democrats do is just like come and say, it's like, Hey, you know, no, things will be all right. If you like, you know, do this and do, do that for us, like, you know, get me into office or whatever. And it's like, actually I have the suspicion that even if you were in office, like fuck all would change. It won't change. Yeah, exactly. Cause we're, we're not. We need more radical revolutionaries, Andrew. And that's what UBI is. And that's what you are. And that's what I'm trying to be. Well, so. you know, you're like, uh, I hope you take this in a positive way. But it's like, you're, you're like me and that you're like a revolutionary of like the heart or the spirit. Um, and and, oh, and one always, of the things yeah. that I um, I worry about, which I, again, completely get, um, is that people are looking up and saying like, you know, like the the empathy like, why should I have empathy for people who do not have empathy for for me and mine uh, or or like the 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 trust mm-hmm. has just been lost and it's very hard to reclaim trust. You know what I mean? Like if it's been broken down over, you know, we all we all know that in relationships, too. You know, it's like if you're like, you know, if, if, if someone breaks your trust, like you're just like, well, like that's that, you know, and and, and that's what's happened with way too many Americans. Um yeah, like the the goal has to be to try and reconstitute trust in like a new set of people, institutions, leaders. Oh, look at that. Is that Stokely? I'm guessing. This yes. is Stokely. He he we tried to keep him quiet for as long as possible, but he always he always uh finds a camera. I don't know why he likes the camera so much. Maybe he got that from his daddy. Um well, he he looks good. He's a natural. Just like his daddy. Uh, uh and um, I have to say on like a personal level, man, I can't imagine what it's like to be the um, son of civil rights leaders and icons who, you know, marched with Dr. King and uh, Stokely Carmichael and like uh, everyone else. I mean, you, you've obviously inherited it like through action. You know, you were like the youngest state legislator yeah. and everything else. I mean, else. for me, though, is for me, it's living a life that's purposeful, that's intentional. It's it's about being a change agent, being part of something larger than yourself. Um and, you know, one of the things I always tell people, man, I, I can't be free if we're not all free. And you're always on this journey to improve the plight and condition of um, those around you. Um, and that's that's what I try to do. I mean, and every, every step that I take and, and, you know, people are critical sometimes if I make a misstep, that's fine. But just like you, my heart's always in the right place, I, I think. And I'm always trying to make it more perfect. Well, we all union. just saw it, man. I mean, you're fighting for a little Stokely. You're fighting for the future of your family and your yeah. community. We need you more than ever, uh, Bakari. Um, I'm so glad we've gotten to know each other and congratulations on the book. Like, uh, being a first time author is a Thank feeling. You so much. Yeah. You're like here, you're bearing it all. Here I am. So, um, I'm literally an open book now and I, I just have to thank you for allowing me to use this platform. You have a huge platform and I'm grateful. And, um, you know, I hope people g- give my vanishing country a chance, especially during this time. So we can have that understanding and we can begin to have these conversations. The most difficult conversation in this country to have is one on race. But as you see, like you and I sat here for an hour and had a conversation, but we talked about solutions too, which is necessary during this. During yeah, this time. I couldn't agree more. Uh, we have to get the solutions out there front and center so that the energy and the grief and the anger leads uh, to a better place. I'm more than grateful for you and your team and the Yang Gang. I love the Yang Gang. They're they're uh, they're they're all, they're everywhere. And Jermaine Johnson, 
in South Carolina trying to get him over this yes. hump too. So I hope more people run for office. Yes. You said they. You sure it's not we? Like we the yag gag? <laughs> we, we. I'm 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 official now. All I need is a little hat. I need a hat or or I'ma add a hat to my Abby on uh on oh, Twitter yeah, we'll, for sure. Freaking, man, we'll send you the the real life hat. But yeah, like if you got the blue cap on, that would be uh tremendous. You would make us uh smarter, better, uh more empathetic. Yeah, that means a lot. Thank you so much, man. Thank, Thank you. you. All me. the best to you and your family, man. 